I, I wonder how you I wonder how you like stories to end. I, I wonder are you a, a cliffhanger kind of person that everything hangs on that last two or three minutes before the credits roll. Um, maybe you enjoy it more actually when when things tie together really neatly and and you know who did it and why they did it and everything comes together. Maybe actually you're you're a sucker for a happy ever after. Uh, and that's the kind of ending that you like. Um, not only do things work out in a neat and tidy way, but they work out in the best way possible for everyone who was involved. Um, well, we are finishing uh, the, f- the, chapter, the final chapter of Nehemiah today. And so we're going to see how this story ends. This portion of God's great story uh, is going to end today. And, and in some ways, it possibly ends in a way that we wouldn't expect um, or, or maybe even wouldn't have hoped for, but it ends uh, and as we engage in this final installment of Nehemiah's story, uh, I pray that, that you'll be encouraged by God. I pray you'll be challenged by his word to us. I pray you'll be nourished by him as he speaks through his word by his spirit to each of us, as I, I hope has been the case throughout the whole series. Um, so last week, we, we left chapter 12 with that great scene of celebration, that joyful worship as people celebrated and dedicated the walls of Jerusalem. And it was an amazing picture. And in some ways, that, fl- that flows into the very start uh, of chapter 13. So let me very briefly, um, let's start actually by reading the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page uh, 498, I think. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know that by memory. I, I looked before I came. Um, so let's just, let's just look at the first three verses of chapter 13. And we'll see with that, that, that in our heads, that joyful worship that took place at the dedication of the the walls of Jerusalem, then we read. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. And so the people, it seems, they're, they're still basking in, in the word of God. They're still having it read to them and then immediately obeying that wonderful good word that they hear. And so it's a great picture. Things continue to look good and healthy. Uh, and perhaps that would be a great place to end. Verse 3 of chapter 13. With that happy ending, in a sense, ringing in our ears. Um, but if you've got your Bible open, you'll see that that's not the end. And that's not even how the story ends. And, and in some ways, I think that's really comforting. What we're going to read through the rest of this chapter isn't necessarily good reading. It isn't easy reading. But but I find that really comforting. You see, when we come to to God's word, what we have is his real and living word. What I mean by that is, yes, of course, we see his perfection, his purity, his ultimate righteousness, his unending grace. We see all of that, his purity and perfection. But we also see the mess that his people make of things sometimes. And I find that encouraging. Um, now, now, that is not, th- those, those um, episodes are not airbrushed out of God's word so that we then think, well, that's okay. Everyone messes up and isn't God gracious. So that, that means that I can mess up and not care about the sin that I carry. No, of course, that's not the motivation. That's not why God has left those instances in his word. Those instances of failure and of disobedience are there to warn us. They're there to, to teach us. To show us what to avoid. Because the people who've gone before us on the journey of faith have fallen down the same pitfalls that we face. 
And so the reality of these failures, in a sense, they are evidence of the grace of God through his word. That he is giving us warning. He is, he is letting us see, look, don't rely on past glory. You need daily faith. It's one of the things we're going to see from today. And we see that throughout God's word. That yes, we see his ultimate perfection. Absolutely. But he has given us these wonderful stories where people mess things up and he continues to do his gracious and good word through his people. Um, and we can see how we fit into that story and how he is calling us to a deeper level of dependency and holiness in ourselves, in him, sorry. And so in the rest of chapter 13, what we're going to see is evidence of compromise. Um, and we'll see this, uh, we'll see the people veering off the, the course of faithfulness that chapter 12 ended with. Uh, they, they made such heartfelt commitments, yet as time passes, their adherence to everything that they promised seems to slip and drift. And I reckon if we could take a snapshot of the people in chapter 13, that we'll read in a moment and show it to the people as they gathered in chapter 12. They wouldn't believe that that would be them. There's no way that they would fall so far, slip so much, compromise so deeply. I'm sure they'd be appalled at what they, see, what they would see. And in some ways it is hard to imagine that these people who we're going to read of here described in chapter 13 are the same people who, who gathered to hear the law in chapter 8, who obeyed it with reverence immediately. They gathered then in chapter 9 and confessed the sins that they had committed they recommit themselves to, to God's law and to obedience in chapter 10. How could they then become the people of chapter 13? And yet we see within this chapter signs of compromise that had crept into the people of Judah as they settled in Jerusalem. And not only that, we then see the response to that compromise. Any of us who have followed Jesus for any length of time, we will recognize that in ourselves, that sense of compromise, that sense of drift that sometimes we go through. Well, if you're in that place this morning, then we will hear the appropriate response to that sense of compromise that God wants to show us. Um, so we will read the chapter. Before we get into um, chapter 13, verse 4 is where we're going to pick up our reading. There's one thing I need to correct from what I mentioned last week and maybe a couple of times before. So I've, I mentioned we see these signs of compromise and, and they, they take place in chapter 13 after a passage of time. So chapter 12 ends, and then there's a passage of time, and then chapter 13 begins. Last week, I know I definitely said that that was a 12-year gap. Um, that's not correct. That was a, a misunderstanding of mine. And let me show you what I mean. If you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 6, uh, this will all become clear as it did for me this week. But while all this was going on, we'll get around the context in this in a minute, but chapter uh, verse 6, while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked for his permission and came back to Jerusalem. So just to, to put us in picture of the whole book, in chapter 1, it was the 20th year of king Artaxerxes that he goes to Jerusalem. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to the king. So Nehemiah is in Jerusalem for 12 years. We're not told whether it was 12 years more than or less than that he then waited to come back to Jerusalem and see all, sees all this evidence of compromise. So apologies for that. I got myself mixed up, but hopefully that's clear. And um, the point is that there's some time has passed. And as we see in chapter 13, it may well be a significant point of time. It's enough time for people to get married and have children. So it's a significant amount of time in some ways, but we're not specifically told it's 12 years. So apologies for that. Now let's read our way through uh, chapter 13. Uh, we're going to pick it up, as I said, in verse 4. We'll read that right to the end of the chapter. Before this, Eliashib the priest, and now I'll say this just as we pass. We've, we've heard that name, Eliashib, before. We're going to see it again later in the chapter where he's called Eliashib the high priest. 
We see it earlier in the book when Eliashib the high priest. This is Eliashib the priest, so we're not sure that it's the same person either way. Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zucker, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing the grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in these last, in these, in those last, sorry, moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? 
one of the sons of Joadiah, or Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for, for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. So this chapter, we see at least three episodes or three examples of compromise that have come in that are evident in the faith of the people. We see at the temple, there's a couple of things. This guy Tobiah has moved in. If you've been around for this whole series, hopefully you'll recognize that name. Tobiah has moved into the temple. Then the portions for the Levites and musicians and others who who were delivering the services at the temple, those portions hadn't been given. And so the Levites had had to go back to their fields to provide for themselves. And so there's these compromises in the temple. Then there's the compromises of the Sabbath, people trading in Jerusalem, those from within the city and those from without. And then finally, there's the intermarriage with foreign nations in verse 23 to 29. Now, there there are many things that I think the Lord would want us to, to hear from him this morning as we look at this chapter. But I wonder if we could summarize these three episodes almost by the the subtitle of the series that we've been using here. So we've been seeing through this great Old Testament account of God, we've been seeing how God is rebuilding and restoring his people in his place for his purposes. However, I think that we see these three examples of compromise in chapter 13. They undermine the purposes of God. They undermine how God would have his people live. And those compromises are shown in his people and in his place. And so we're going to think about it in that way. And so perhaps you can see, and let me see how the compromises firstly affect the place of God. Now, not just Jerusalem itself, that is part of it, but principally the temple here. Uh, Firstly, through this incident we see with Tobiah, and secondly then with the provisions for the Levites. These are issues that take place within the grounds of the temple, and they affect the worship of God that can take place in his place. And secondly, we see how those compromises impact the reality of the Jews as his people, God's people. We see the adherence to the Sabbath and with intermarriage. We see those things both affect what it means to live as the people of God. As we've said many many times through this series, the holy people of the holy God. Their desecration of the Sabbath and their marrying with other nations is compromising what it means to live as the people of God. And so firstly then, let's consider the compromises that we witness regarding God's place, the temple. And as I mentioned, we see this with Tobiah, and we should recognize his name. He he is an enemy and has been an enemy right from the beginning. We see him in chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6. And he appears each time in order to disrupt or potentially even try to derail the whole rebuilding project that's taking place in Jerusalem. This man was no friend, shouldn't have been a friend of the Jewish people. He was an outright opponent of Nehemiah, He was not someone who should be welcomed in. Indeed, as we read in verse 1, we read that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted to the assembly of God. Well, we know that Tobiah, the Ammonite, that's how he was known. And so he should not be welcomed in. This should be clear, shouldn't it? This guy is from a nation who we shouldn't welcome into the the assembly of God. And he has been an opponent right from day one. But by the time we get to verse 4 of chapter 13, we don't just find people 
fraternizing with Tobiah, kind of tolerating him on the fringes. No, he has been given a room in the temple. In fact, verse 5, read it with me. And you get the sight of the scale of it here. So Eliashib, this is the priest, Eliashib had provided him, Tobiah, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and the tithes of grain, the new wine and the provision. This was a room that stored things to help people worship God. And they had taken all of that stuff out and put Tobiah in. This is, this is, this is devastating. This is scandalous. How could this have happened? How could the people, particularly maybe Eliashib in this case, how could they have got so wrong? Well, that's a question that we might find ourselves asking again because we move on to think about the other issue with the temple from verse 10 to 14. We see the provisions that were supposed to be made for the Levites and musicians, and they're not. And so in order to provide for themselves, the Levites had to go back out to their fields and provide for themselves. We saw at the very end of chapter 12, the people saying that they would indeed provide for the Levites. Remember, that was our final point last week, that there was a provision for the worship of God through, the, through the, the offerings that were given specifically for the people who served in the temple. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a major deal until we reach verse 11 and we see Nehemiah's question. And Nehemiah asks, why is the house of God neglected? You see, that the people's drift away from providing for the folk who were to help, uh, help provide the worship space, help provide the services, help lead them in worship and offer the sacrifices on their behalf. They were being neglected, and therefore the worship of God was being neglected. And the language of Nehemiah's question should sound familiar, because the very last verse of chapter 10, the people themselves promised, we will not neglect the house of our God. I mean... This would be comedic if it wasn't so tragic. They promise we will not neglect. Nehemiah has to come back and say, why is this place being neglected? So what's going on here in chapter 13 is a fragrant breaking of their own covenant. How how could they? Were they not sincere when they made those promises? And if they were, how could they forget them so easily and so quickly? Well, Well, this is the danger of compromise often one very small step that leads to another very small step and another step and another step. And before you know it, you find yourself doing exactly the opposite thing if you said you would never do. I think I have too many negatives in there. You find yourself doing the thing you said you would never do. It's like mission creep as, as Satan seeks to take hold of our hearts. It is rarely not... not Not never, but rarely the big, bold, dramatic things that Satan will tempt us with and lead us into. But by tiny steps, the the subtlety with which he leads us so that over time, our attitudes change. Over time, we don't even realize how far we've drifted it. And so the thing that we once thought was so obviously wrong becomes acceptable. One commentator even puts it like this, all too easily... The ugly thing gradually becomes tolerated, even viewed as possibly useful. And finally, it becomes the attractive thing. And for us, as we read of this neglect of God's place and the compromises that are taking place here, let's not not assume that we are immune from that kind of activity. 
that we are immune from that kind of sliding away from the faithfulness. Oh, no, no, that, that would never be us. Well, the people at the end of chapter 12, in fact, at the end of chapter 10, they promised we will not do this. And then here they find themselves right in the middle of it. And this is why I think this chapter has such stark warning for us. It's what God is trying to say. Wake up, church. See the tiny steps of compromise that we have allowed to creep in. Remember what he has called you to, what he has done for you, what it means to be his people, to live in his place and therefore live out his purposes. We read it in Ephesians 5 where it's, be careful in how you live because the days are evil. Be watchful. And from First Peter. And so we think of the compromises that are taking place in the temple and God's place. And if we were to fast forward, maybe this language of temple, as we take that through the New Testament, we, we know that we no longer have a physical temple. But that is because we are told throughout First Corinthians and a bit of Second Corinthians that that the temple of God now is within us as his spirit indwells us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And so we are the place where God dwells. Those of us who love and follow Jesus. And so there's a personal challenge here that we need to hear. That if we're seeking to follow Jesus, is there compromises that we're allowing into the temple of God? But then corporately, as the gathered church is also referred to as the temple of God, God's people as they gather. And so there's a collective element of this for us to wrestle with too. Are there compromises that we have allowed to creep in so that the worship of God is stunted in this place? And so if I could pose a couple of questions to help us think this through. Like Tobiah moving into the temple. Have we provided space or have we given priority to something or someone who is taking the place of worshiping God in our lives? Tobiah had moved into that storeroom, which should have been used to provide for the worship of God. Well, have we allowed anyone or anything to come into our lives, which is robbing us of the ability to worship our God? And equally, like the failure to provide for the daily portions for the Levites and the musicians, have we failed to adequately provide for the worship of God in our hearts? Have we neglected to nurture something which will inspire worship from our heart? And so these are, these are searching questions, but they are vital ones. Because if we, if we know of compromise in these areas, then we need to know what to do about it. And we can learn from Nehemiah here because he goes about trying to restore what God's people should be doing, how they should be treating his place. And so firstly, what we see whenever we think of the episode with Tobiah, very simply, but quite dramatically, Nehemiah chucks him out. He gets rid. He clears the deck of anything that had a remnant of Tobiah in it. He throws everything out of that room. And so there's, there's a very clear example for us here that when there is sin, or if there is a temptation or a compromise to sin, there, we, we can't leave any wiggle room for it. We have got to, in New Testament language, get rid of that, put to death the old self. This is dramatic language, yes, but that's because sin is devastating to God's people, indeed to all of us. And so that's why we read in verses like Hebrews 12, one, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw off 
Just as Nehemiah cleared out that room, had it purified and then reused, let's clear out that sin that we are, we are holding on to. Those compromises that we know that if we could see them, if we stood back from our own life, you know, five years ago we would look at it and say, never will I ever do that. And we find ourselves right in the middle of it now. And we think, how did we get here? Well, the response to it is get rid of it. As painful as that may be, as difficult and disruptive as that may be, get rid of it. Because there can be no toleration of sin within God's people. Maybe your mind is cast, as we think of the temples being cleared, maybe your mind is being cast to that image of Jesus cleansing the temple of his day. That significant place, remember in John 2, he calls it my father's house. And what does he do when he sees compromise in? He grabs a whip, he turns tables over, he chases animals and people out of there. He gets rid. See, that, that maybe goes against the image of, of gentle Jesus, meek and mild that we have. But actually what it does show is Jesus' holy confrontation against sin. And ultimately his victory over it. So so, so what's the point of all this? Well, surely God is calling us to do exactly the same, to rid ourselves of sin and compromise, to stop entertaining those habits which are destroying our spiritual health, to turn away from that pastime that seems so innocent but has led us into some dangerous places. If there's things that we are tolerating now that we just know we shouldn't be, Let's quit dilly-dallying around it and get rid of it. How can we trade what God has given as good and precious, these great gifts, yet so regularly we trade them for such cheap knockoff versions that offer temporary thrills, temporary enjoyment, temporary pleasure, temporary fulfillment, but ultimately they ruin us. And so God's word is a loving call to get rid. And so perhaps this morning, some of us need to come before our holy and loving God in confession. And as we do, let's recognize that God gives us good and better things. So although turning from sin means we have to turn from something which we enjoy, We are turning to the author of life and the ultimate source of joy and fulfillment and eternal peace and security. And so it might be difficult, I realize that, to turn from the things that has got a hold on our hearts. But when we are turning to our heavenly, loving, pure Father, His ways are best. And He will help us. Thank God He will help us. So the first thing that Nehemiah does when he realizes this compromise is he gets rid of it. The second thing that I'll very quickly just mention um, is that he restores the things to what they should have been. So when it comes to Tobiah, he puts back in the things to the temple that should have been in that room. When it comes to, uh, we'll see later on, when it comes to the uh, the Sabbath, he brings that back. He, He locks the doors. He makes sure the Sabbath is pure. He posts Levites there. When we see about even the provisions that should have been made for the Levites, he he then reinstates that and we're told that all of Judah then provide again. And so I'm not saying that this is an equation, but it seems to be this pattern throughout scripture that when God tells us to get rid of something, we replace it with something better. We replace it with his good design. 
And so that's why we put off the old self and put on the new. That's why we turn and get rid and put to death all this old stuff so that we can know eternal life. And so what we've seen here so far is this compromise in God's place, the temple. And Nehemiah's response to that is bold and courageous and it's eradicating sin. And may God help us, those who are following him, to to root out that sin, to be zealous for faithfulness, to be spurring one another on to exactly that. And may he help us do just that. Let me try to briefly then mention the people. Um, We've seen a number of times through this series that, that the people of the holy God should demonstrate his holiness by their lives. And indeed, to be his people is to be a holy people. To worship him is to give your whole life as a sacrifice of worship to him. And two of the outworkings of that holy living are expressed here for us in chapter 13. We have the Sabbath observance and marrying nations, uh, marrying into and, and, and with nations around us. And, and these are not incidental errors in the people's lives. Again, these are issues that clearly formed part of the recommittal that we saw back in chapter 10. So in chapter 10, verse 31, oh, sorry, 30 and 31, we saw them say, we will not marry people from other nations. We saw them say, we will keep the Sabbath day holy. Yet here they are finding themselves uh, again, not doing exactly that. And so keeping the Sabbath day and not marrying those from nations around, they were important laws that God gave to his people. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we think about God's holiness, his laws are not just an end in themselves. Because Actually, when we follow, as we saw in chapter 10, when we follow and obey God's word, we realize that that leads to a life of faithfulness to his ways, which draws people to his life and brings praise to his name. And so God's laws for his people are actually for his glory. And so if this is the case, if God gives his laws so that his people live live lives that point others and draw people to himself, then how had the Jewish people drifted so far from this command? from their own commitments. Well, well, so much of what we said already about the temple applies here, doesn't it? And although we're not told the specifics, my assumption is that, again, it's been a slow process. It's been a drifting to allowing people, maybe people not Jews, so we read of the, tar, the people from Tyre who live in Jerusalem. They started selling things, and maybe there was an, a tolerance to that because they're not Jewish, and so that's okay, but ultimately they had to sell it to someone. And so the Jews are there buying and selling on the Sabbath before you know what the full marketplace is in full swing. And so compromise creeps, creeps in. And it's not too long before the Sabbath starts to look like every other day. And in terms of intermarriage, again, we could say the same thing. That the part of the reason for these laws was it's so that God's people would be distinctive in the world and draw people to themselves. And so by engaging in this mixing of cultures and mixing of religion and watering down of the faith of Yahweh, And what it meant is the people started to look like everyone else around them. And so trading on the Sabbath might have made good economic sense, but it also made the Jews look like everybody else. Marrying folks from other nations might have seemed like culturally a very difficult thing to do, yet it made the Jews seem like every other nation. And hopefully you can see the link here with our day too, that as we seek to continue to follow Yahweh, Is there anything about our lives that shows the distinctiveness of being his? Being God's people? Or or is it possible for us to blend so seamlessly into the background 
that, that there's no way for those around us to know what it means to live and worship God. And again, if we find ourselves challenged by these thoughts, then how does God want us to respond? Well, the same way that Nehemiah shows us here. And it's the same as what we've already seen, that there's decisive and robust action. So in terms of the Sabbath trading, Nehemiah cuts off the supply chain. He he closes the doors. He posts guards. And so therefore, he cuts the demand. In terms of the marriage, then he's, well, he's pretty harsh here, isn't he? In terms of the men who have married women from other nations, he pulls out their hair, he beats some, he calls curses down. Now, that may sound extreme to us, and I'm not going to pretend to offer an explanation for that, except to say that it shows the seriousness of sin. And I find it even an interesting reflection in my own heart that I was more offended by Nehemiah's reaction than I was to the sin of the people. We might read this and think, goodness, how could Nehemiah do that? No, how could the people do that? How could they have turned from God's good ways? And so we, we, we need this better and more pure, more godly understanding of sin and the dangers of it for his people. And one final point that I'll make here in regards to how Nehemiah responds and reacts to these, these instances is um, with the Sabbath and with marriage, he calls back to the people's history. So he goes back with the Sabbath and says, don't you realize that your ancestors did this and that's why we're rebuilding this city? They drifted from God and so he destroyed it and now we're having to rebuild. Why are you then going back to those old patterns? Same with intermarriage. Isn't not marriages like this that cause Solomon, the greatest king who ever lived, uh, to, to stumble and fall? And there's a helpfulness here for us to say, look back, not only, as we said right at the beginning, not only to God's word, which is a good, gracious reminder for us to say, watch out for these pitfalls, but also into our own hearts. To say, hang on, I know when I started to tolerate that, I ended up here. I don't want to end up here, so I'm not going to tolerate that. God moves in our lives. He draws us on. It is a journey of faith and and sanctification with him. And so he gives us our own warnings in our own lives as he works within us. And so I suppose it's up to us. We, we, We need to be paying enough attention. To not repeat those same mistakes. And thinking about that and thinking about how Nehemiah is taking the people back. Um, it reminded me of Jesus' harsh words to the church in Ephesus in his letter in Revelation where he says, You do all this wonderful stuff, but you've forgotten your first love. You've forsaken your first love. And so as much as it's helpful for us to look back to see those pitfalls and temptations that we've stumbled on in the past... Look back to our King. Look back to the love that Christ has for us. Look back to the joy of salvation that maybe you once knew and wondered now why it has grown cold. God is the same. He hasn't changed. He hasn't compromised his faithfulness to us. And so cling to him and cling to his faithfulness as we seek to live our lives well for him. And so here we have all of these evidences of compromise And as heavy as this may have been as a way to end a story, even as heavy as this sermon may have been to end a series, may we hear from God and live out such a way that we can say, remember me with favor, my God. Remember me for good, my God. Let's be those who are passionate about the ways of God because we know his ways to be best. Let's be those who are zealous 
about rooting out sin. And I realize that that is difficult. And I realize that that touches nerves. But I also realize, and many of us will know this, either from personal experience or from walking alongside someone, that for someone's life to fall apart over here, for someone's faith to fall apart over here, there takes lots of little steps along the way. And God has given us his word to guide us. He's given us his spirit to spark and to convict whenever we stumble in sin. And he's given us one another to say, hang on a minute. Are you sure you want to go down that road? Are you sure you want to do that? That doesn't seem like something God would have for you. And so alongside all of this, how how do we counter compromise? How do we come against compromise? I think it starts with vulnerability before our father to say, search me and know me. And alongside that, I think we are, as we are called, not on an equal plane, but as we're called to encourage one another. That needs vulnerability. So if I start to stumble and fall towards a devastating pattern, I need someone here who knows me well enough to say, Drew, you need to stop that. Lovingly, graciously, patiently. Because it could be for the good of my marriage. It could be for the good of our church. It could be the good of the gospel witness here in this place. And so let's be people who are zealous for God's kingdom, for his ways, for his word. And it's all as it always is for his glory. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us these gracious and loving words. We thank you that by your word you shape us, you mold us, you nurture us, you build us up. And as well, God, we recognize that at times... You bring your word to, to convict, to train us in righteousness, to correct, to rebuke. And so I pray, Father, that among us here, you would find soft hearts willing to bend to your will. Father, that you would reveal those areas in our lives individually and corporately here as your people. Those, those areas of compromise, and you would call us back to faithfulness. And not only that, Father, we would answer that call with urgency and obedience. Oh, our God, we, we pray for your help, and we thank you that your help is on offer. We thank you that you don't leave us to go through this life on our own, but, Father, you give us your Holy Spirit who indwells us. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work within us. And so we thank you, Father, that in your saving work that you have done in Christ Jesus, we can put to death all that sin. We can live the life of of obedience and faithfulness that you call us to. We praise you, Father. It is only in your strength that we can do that. And we thank you that you pour out your strength upon us. And so we do ask, Father, for your protection upon us. We ask for your guidance. We ask for um, your faithfulness, Father, to be so evident in our lives that people are drawn to the good news of your gospel. They see the holy God at work through our living for you. Our Father, I pray 
uh, for those of us who are uh, and who may be um, may have been confronted by something this morning father would you help us to bring our hearts before you father help us to come in confession if we need it help us to come pleading for help if we need it so that father we could then get rid of that sin put to death that compromise and live in the life of joy and abundance that may not look comfortable, that may not even be comfortable in this life, but we know is eternally better. So would you give us strength, we pray. Give us humility, we ask. Give us love for one another and grace with one another. And we do, Father, pray all of these things in your wonderful, precious, saving name.